ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. G'day, Angus Furley here. Coming up on the Country Hour, we'll again focus on the latest flooding situation and check in with farmers around the flood zones as water peaks in some places, recedes in parts and continues to rise in others. You'll also hear from the Weather Bureau about why it has been so wet despite an El Nino declaration only a few months ago. What does it mean for you? You can get in touch, tell me what it's like at your place. Text in on 0467 842 722 or call on 1300 594 222. And let's start our flood coverage today with the situation on the Campaspe River and hear from Mick Acox, a dairy farmer on the Campaspe south of Rochester. I spoke with him a little earlier. I feel the river's peaked here at a level a lot less than the 2022 floods, probably nearly a metre less, which is which is really significant for, for, well, everybody, but especially Rochester. I don't think a lot of houses, if any, have been inundated, which is really good because, you know, a third of the houses, or I don't know exactly how many, but still people aren't in them. So uh, they didn't want another flood, Angus, so... As far as the farm goes, uh, the dairy side of it, we have a barn system here and the cows are fine, milk is okay, got, milk and crew got in, but uh, our actual feed area is probably the biggest area where we store the silage and commodities and things. So you've got a fair bit of flood water on your farm? Uh, not a lot. It's it's hard to describe, but the, the dairy's up elevated and the, and the barn is, but where we've got... Um, the storage for our silage and that, uh, it, it gets compromised when the river comes out. So we're in the process of going to, we're going to relocate all that area to some high country. So you'll relocate long term. So you, if these floods keep happening, you don't keep dealing with, with the same problems? Correct, yeah. Yep. And right now, Mick, it's, it's a big river that's well and truly out of its banks? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, here. I don't know, the capacity probably two kilometres wide and fairly roars when the river's in full flood. I think it's, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I've heard it's one of the fastest flowing rivers in Australia when it's in when, it, when it's flooding. Okay, so it's come up pretty quickly, but it will also hopefully recede pretty quickly? Yeah, that's true. It, it, it does drop pretty quick, which is, you know, which is good. So, it, look, the, the Murray, I think, you spoke to Toby Acox yesterday and he's intimated that the backup at Ichuka and to the Murray wasn't happening, which is, if that if that's the case, um, it impacts here in town. But, um, yeah, it's the access into Rochi still, you can't get over the bridge at, at Rochi and I think the Elmore Bridge is still shut. So a lot of the roads around here, uh, you know, are closed. So, you know, it's going to be around for a while. Talking about the Murray, that was the issue last uh, in 2022, wasn't it? That we had all of these rivers that head north trying to feed into the Murray that was already fallen and then obviously couldn't drain and then the, the water backed up? 
Yeah, um, the the big flood in twenty two. That there was so much runoff from uh, above the catchment because my understanding is there hasn't been a lot of water come actually come over our block. It's what's it's what's runoff between here and 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 the weir. So you know the water through Bendigo and um, that flows Heathcote through there. That I mean, Gornong, all those. That's what's caused this flood to a fair degree. They'll probably come up a bit when that water from Epilock gets here, but um, that hasn't been the main reason of this flood, I don't think. And does that just show how every flood is different depending on where where in the catchment the big rains fall? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, who can predict them? But uh, there's a lot of talk in town to have dump gates at the weir and all sorts of things, which... You know, you, it's that big flood. There was so much water going into Epilock that the weir could have been empty, and within you know two days, you'd have massive floods. So it's 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 very hard to predict what the right outcome is. Levy banks, I don't think are the issue. It just sends it somewhere else. I don't know, Angus. It's <laughs> it's uh, someone else's worry to work that one out. And what of emotions been like, I suppose, for yourself, Mick, for other farmers and then for, for the people in town to be faced with, with this threat so soon after the, the devastation of, of 22? Uh, yeah, for sure. The, the meeting yesterday, the SES meeting, was you could feel the concern from the locals and, and understandably, like, um, you know, the town's really been compromised from that flood. The Rochie will still be right. It's a great community and great, great town. But um, you know, how much can they take? You know, you, it's you know, there's houses being sold, but I suppose someone's buying them. So hopefully, there's families that can see an opportunity and and avail of it. Cheaper housing, even though they're you know they've been flooded, but um, it's it's it'll be a different town, I guess, down the track. The hospital's still out of action. Aged care's out of action. And what are we? Fifteen months since since the flood. And then to have have possibly another one, you can understand why people get um, pretty anxious. And at your place, Mick, uh, as you said, impacts nothing like twenty twenty two. But what what are you going to be dealing with from this point on in in terms of just managing how how wet things are? Oh well. Um, I've just been down putting some dirt in front of the commodity shed bays. They'll be okay. Corn silage stack has got probably, I don't know, 18 inches of water around the base. The, the sides are sealed, but whether it's, the you know, damage is there, we'll lose a bit. But apart from that, we've got a pivot of corn through and it didn't go under, which was near the guinea fowl. <laughs> That uh, sorry, Angus. <laughs> You're right, Mick. <laughs> um, it, it's okay. So that was a bit of a worry um, that that'd get flooded. But no, it won't be too bad here. Cows are good. Milking crew got here. Yeah, we're we're okay. We'll be rocking. That was Mick Acox, a dairy farmer adjacent to the Campaspe River, south of Rochester. On the text line, people getting in touch. As I said, we'll hear from the Weather Bureau shortly about, well, accusations that, that perhaps the public was poorly informed about what weather to expect this summer. 
Uh, Robert Chilton says the Bureau needs ants. They could do a better job of predicting the weather. And this person says, Angus, it would be interesting to know if anyone went to the trouble of reducing stock numbers due to all the hype in the media about El Nino. There seems to be a lot of very long grass around and nothing much to eat. Thanks for that text. 0467842722 is how you can text in. Let's keep on our flood coverage because it's not just on the major rivers where people are being hit hard by flood water. Chris Morgan is a grain grower south of Colburn Abbon on the Goberup Creek, usually an insignificant waterway. Right now, it's lapping Chris's front lawn. I spoke with him earlier. Yeah, well, we've just come through Colburn Abbon and it's, the water's still over the road nearly all the way to Winolda, and, uh, which is where we turn off to come to our place. We've had, since the day before Christmas, we finished harvest about 10 o'clock that night, and since then we've had about 205 mil. And the south of us have obviously had a lot more because the water comes this way from the Heathcote area or the Redcastle area. So it's very wet. It gets with about 10 foot of the front of the house, but it, it doesn't flood here. It doesn't flood the house because we're on, on a high bank. So looking out your front door then right now, Chris, there's there's water everywhere. Yeah, we look out the door and we <clears throat> walk out the front lawn and you go about four foot onto the just so off the lawn and you're, you're standing in the creek, whereas the centre of the creek is probably about oh, 100 metres away or more. And across your farm, Chris, how much of it is underwater? At the moment, I suppose you, you wouldn't drive into the bog of duck, any part of it, but um, it, it'll get away. We're a bit undulating on the back end, so the water will get away. That's one thing we do through the water first here and we... Uh, then we see the end of it because it all heads north. And that water going through your place, Chris, does that go to the Campaspe or is is it a separate system? No, it, we go through the lakes at uh, Crop, Lake Cooper, uh, the, the Bollinger, Gainer Swamp. And once all that fills up, it continues on to the north and eventually goes through Timmering. And the, it all ends up in the Murray eventually. But the Campaspe is on a, on a we're on a different scheme to that. And with the the Campaspe flood, Chris, you've been into Rochi this morning. I've been into Rochi with a neighbour to go out and help shift furniture for his cousin, who's um who's had enough and he's moving on. So uh, we just been helping this morning load the removal truck. I think that was this could have been his third time. He said on the Campaspe. We've got a son that lives in Rochester. He got, went under the last time, but I went and checked his house this morning and he didn't go under, so he's okay. And Rochi looked to be not too bad, considering, this morning. And and the friend you were helping out were moving furniture, did they know whether their house would flood? Uh, well, while we were there, we seen the water coming up through the the bung in the ground from the back fill from the river into the gutters, but didn't get any higher. So Ned was pretty happy with that. It was just... And then the ball there, the, they, a message came out that the river had peaked. So they were all a bit happy about that. And as you said, had enough. I mean, after this event, is he uh, is he going to come back? No, no, he's moving He's moving on to Benigo. That's it, he's, he's out for good. He's out, yeah. Yeah. Um, which is probably, uh, that could be happening over there a bit. And... Uh, once the water does does move on, Chris, um, yeah, you'll, I'm assuming you'll have a mess to clean up. And then, as you said, uh, in the boom spray, I suppose. Yeah, in the boom spray and, 
and uh, off the landmark and get another couple of shuttles and get into it. Yeah, but we're okay here. There's no problems there. They'd be a lot worse off. That was Chris Morgan, who's a grain grower south of, Canol- of Colburn Abbon, who's had flooding at his place from the Gaberup Creek. Zero four six seven eight four two seven double two is the text line if you'd like to get in touch with the program. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. The Bureau of Meteorology says it will review its messaging to the public about long-range forecasts after communities were caught off guard by the saturating rains of the past fortnight. The wet weather has been so surprising in some parts because the Bureau's El Nino declaration in September created expectations of hotter and drier weather to come. While the Bureau says its models late last year were showing increasing rainfall December and January, it seems that message didn't get through to the public. Dr Carl Braganza, National Manager of Climate Services at the Bureau, says there has been an unusual combination of climate drivers in recent months. Yeah, it's been a really interesting period. Um, should probably start the story back in August, so um, or even earlier. We we had uh, indications that an El Nino um, would develop in the Pacific pretty much from early in the year, from around April. Um, we also had indications that a positive Indian Ocean dipole, which is a similar influence on drier conditions in the southeast, um, and those two things did eventuate. So over winter and spring, we actually had some drier conditions. Um, August, September, October nationally was actually the driest three-month period of any three months on record. Given those really dry settings, um, the fact that we had an El Nino that was eventually declared in September, um, we were looking at elevated fire risk and and, um, um, a lack of rainfall probably extending um, potentially over the whole of summer. Um, The models that we ran did show the indication of rainfall potential coming in, particularly for the southeast for December and January. Um, However, our experience of previous El Nino years is um, when we do get some rainfall through summer, um, as El Nino starts to reduce its influence, um, it can just grow grow more fuel growth um, or grow more um, fuel out there and vegetation for fire. Um, So we were quite cautious on on how we were understanding that increasing rainfall signal in the models. Um, What's happened has been quite surprising, actually. So from those really dry conditions, um, we started getting some rainfall in October. And then since then, we've had, you know, uh, Christmas Day, Boxing Day. Um, and then this week, we've got, you know, really high rainfall totals in the Golden Valley there. Um, it's quite difficult to work out what's going on here. But this El Nino event was quite a tricky one. It was late to develop by our metrics. Um, we've also had a really interesting combination of conditions. So the El Nino has um, been associated with a delayed monsoon. So it's actually been quite dry up north, away from far north Queensland with um, tropical cyclone Jasper has brought some rainfall. Um, but it's very unusual to have an El Nino in a delayed monsoon and what's called a positive southern annular mode. So the winds around Antarctica um, have contracted further south towards the continent. Um, and that's typically in summer associated with a bit of increased rainfall into southeastern Australia and Victoria. Um, and we've had a Tasman Sea that's up to six degrees above average and it's been very warm over no, um spring and into December as well. So that combination is really unusual for El Nino and it seems to have brought most of the rainfall that we've seen. Okay, so that positive southern annual mode that's that's a big climate driver at the moment behind this rainfall, that's not something that the Bureau was expecting? 
Um, so the models were showing that from about you know spring onwards. We saw the models, particularly for the southeast, were bringing in elevated odds of rainfall for December and January. Um, but people, you know, probably were remembering the El Nino declaration in in September. Um, but checking back in the models, it was sort of drifting that way. Um, it is unusual though. Normally, you know, it's not unusual as El Nino backs off to get some rainfall events in November, January, D December, particularly January, um, but to get the regularity of rainfall that we've seen um, and, you know, these extended humid conditions that we've all experienced in Victoria, um, that's much more consistent with the La Nina event. And actually the, the, the really positive and persistent Southern annular mode is much more consistent with the La Nina events as well. So um, seeing those three things together isn't something that, um, we would have anticipated the sudden anemo to have such a strong effect. So clearly, among the community, there's there's widespread frustration that uh, uh, they were told an El Nino was coming. There's that correlation with hotter and drier weather, uh, and then into summer, even once El Nino was waning, that the bureau's forecast was still for perhaps average rainfall. It's been very much well above average rainfall. So, do, do you understand where all of that that frustration is is emanating from? Oh, totally. Look, and, you know, we would like our forecasts to work out every time, um, you know, and certainly um, professionally for us, it's been not only interesting, but also um, looking back. Um, so one, one of the things I think if we were learning from this event, um, a lot of our messaging through spring was really geared towards the emergency services. We, you know, have had quite a number of years where we've had significant national natural disasters. So um, when we were looking at our risk setting for summer, Certainly, I don't think we would change much in terms of um, preparations for fire weather. And I think probably given that the models were bringing some moisture in for summer, um, we were noting that soil moisture was reasonably okay and that the water storages were really good. So from an agricultural perspective, um, it wasn't looking like we were heading into severe drought, um, but certainly probably elevated fire danger. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, we can only call it as we see it at the Bureau. So, you know, as we were developing that El Nino, um, given that really dry and hot um, August, September, October that we had in many parts of the country, um, you know, the, the, the risk setting seemed appropriate at the time. Is there a bit of a conflict there then if you're trying to do long range forecasting, one, to uh, inform individuals, including farmers, but then more generally to to inform fire risk? If, if you can err on the side of caution with fire risk, but then when it comes to agriculture, you have farmers trying to make big business decisions based perhaps on, on those forecasts? I don't think it's a conflict of interest. It's really a case of every sector probably has a different way to look at a long-range forecast. So a long-range forecast is probabilistic. Um, and so depending on what you're doing and what your risk setting is, um, you would interpret the seasonal forecast a little bit differently. And the Bureau, of course, doesn't control how others, whether it be... Uh, uh, lobby groups or politicians or whoever it may be, how they represent your forecast and your El Nino declaration. So is there a problem there that the Bureau's putting out information, it's being conveyed by others, and then the, the, the reality of it is being lost? Look, that's certainly not something that we can control is how other people talk about it. With this event, um, we had heard talk of a super El Nino and um, you know, some of those sort of words we used around, not just here, but, but globally in the media. Um, we were quite, we never like that. Um, it sort of starts to, you know, once someone calls something um, a super El Nino, that tends to stick in the media and in people's minds. 
Um, but, you know, yeah, obviously we don't control all of that messaging. But but what we can do is be really clear in our own messaging that we put out. Um, as I said, look, we'll review this year, but um, looking back at what we did, I think I think we called it as we, as we saw it, um, talking to the emergency service managers, even some of those agencies weren't really adjusting some of their summer um, outlooks when we started getting indications of rain. And, and that was fair enough. We really did get fires, particularly through um, inland New South Wales. Um, so it's just one of those years that's been very, very difficult to forecast. And there's been a number of surprising factors to the climate system, particularly over the last three months. And just finally, and probably most importantly, what, what's the long range outlook where we stand now? So it's similar to what we've seen. So um, continued dry um, through the top end, um, but continued um, neutral to just just um, increased odds of getting above median rainfall um, into the southeastern corner of the continent um, over the next couple of months. And could El Nino re-intensify into the middle of the year? So what um, El Nino and La Nina typically do is they develop through um, winter and spring, um, tend to kind of peak as phenomena in over summer, even though their influence on Australia wanes, and then they tend to decay um, through the autumn period. Autumn's a bit of a reset um, for the Pacific, so it's a little bit difficult to predict through autumn. Um, so typically what we do is wait till the end of autumn to, to have a look um, at what the models are staying beyond that three-month period for El Nino. Look, there's three possible states for the Pacific. There's neutral El Nino and La Nina, so it's going to be one of those three. But, uh, yeah, I think the Bureau will probably wait um, till we get into to May to really look at what um, that might look like for winter and spring. That was Dr Carl Braganza, National Manager of Climate Services at the Bureau. Uh, and someone on the text line has said, who is this guy? The Bureau did declare a super El Nino with uh, Dr. Carl Braganza there saying that, that there was some erroneous reporting of that El Nino declaration and using terms like super. I don't think the Bureau did use that term. I can stand to be corrected. But yeah, it certainly did present in in other sectors, uh, third parties reporting on the Bureau's declaration. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts though, on what he did have to say there. 0467 842 722 is the text line. And we will stick with the wet weather now before heading off to rural news because Owen Smith has a small property east of Ngambi. He's fairly new to the area and wasn't around for the 2022 floods. He told reporter Emma Field he tipped out 90 mils of rain from his gauge after the storms and heavy rain at the weekend. I have a farm with about seven acres. I've got cows, sheep, chickens and some horses. They're all extremely... They are very frightened of the storm that happened. And how much uh, rain have you recorded in this last big rain event that's come through in the last day or two? Last I checked, it was about 90 millimetres. That's a lot of rain. Yes, certainly. And how are things looking on your property? Um, It's looking okay, but I have seen some of my neighbours and they're starting to get quite a bit of water. And where's that water coming from? Um, it's coming from the east. Mm, mm. And are you worried at all or? Oh, a little bit. Most roads are filled. We've got a couple that are still okay, but they're mainly all flooded. And so what's the situation with your pastures and your property itself? My property's okay, but my neighbours, their properties are almost underwater, I've seen. 
And that's just the flood water coming off the rivers, is it, or coming from Ngambi? Uh, I think a bit of both. Mm. What's this situation like compared to October 2022? Well, in October, for us, it really wasn't that stressful because we just were new to the area and so we didn't think much of it. So this is all pretty new to you because you've never seen sort of flood levels like this? Yeah. Yeah, so what's your plan for today? Just going around, checking that everything's okay and checking all the cattle and that. That was Ngambi property owner Owen Smith speaking with Emma Field. Lots of texts on the text line regarding the Bureau, criticisms of its long-range forecasting or perhaps the communication of that. Mick says, I follow two other weather programs and they have both been talking about a wet summer and wet 24 season for months now. How can the Bureau get it so wrong? Typical government-run program, says Mick. Chris says, Angus, it seems people have short memories. Back in July, August 23, many questions were being asked as to why the Bureau had not declared El Nino. They were severely criticised for not doing the declaration. That is true, Chris. Smithy says the Bureau didn't drop the ball with weather forecasts. It was the media, including including you guys at the ABC, who sensationalised the El Nino out of proportion. El Nino is only a higher chance of dry weather. And this person at Willung South says the forecast for continuing dry, they're questioning. I don't think that uh, the Bureau, that Carl Braganza from the Bureau did say that, but this person says... Not been too dry here at Wollong South for a few weeks now, nearly 3.5 inches in the past 48 hours. Sean at Indigo says, holy hell, a whole lot of excuses there from the Bureau, a billion dollar con. And Anthony at Yelka says, Angus old mate, I want a job working for the Bureau. Uh, were you not accountable for anything that comes out of your mouth, says Anthony. 0467 842 722 is how you can do the same as those texters and get in touch. 29 to 1 now, though, so let's head off to Rural News. It's taken the place of our news headlines. Uh, we've moved Rural News into that news headline slot at 12.30. Doesn't mean you won't get any breaking news if it does come to hand. We'll certainly bring that to you, but uh, expect to hear from this point forth. At 12.30, you'll hear five minutes of Rural News, which is our roundup of ag news from around the country. Let's head to that now with Jane McNaughton. Good afternoon, Angus. The owner of a winery in the state's north says while the region has experienced wild weather, the humidity is the real concern for local wine producers. Damien Cofield from Cofield Wines near Rodler Glen says it's a critical time about a month before grape harvest and humid conditions and heavy rainfall can lead to disease. He says he's on tender hooks but remains optimistic about the coming harvest. So we're about uh, a month away probably, yes, a month away from the start of harvest. So, you know, it's a pretty critical time for us. So we really need the weather conditions to be in our favour to get maximum uh, flavour development from here on. And we've had some pretty wet and wild weather, I mean, this week, but also last week um, across the northeast. What can you tell me about how that's impacting the vines where you are? Uh, so the the wild weather from... A humidity point of view is of real, of real concern because that's what can lead to some disease if we get uh, really humid conditions and and downpours of rain that can cause some mildews, so powdery mildew, 
um, and also setting some um, botrytis rots as well. And, you know, that's of great concern. Um, at this stage, we're quite clean and we've got on top of our SOS spray program that we've been running um, has worked and we've been able to keep those things at bay, which has been great. Um, but it is something that we're constantly on, you know, on tender hooks really at the moment, keeping an eye on it because things can go south pretty quickly. And uh, we're, we're just, you know, optimistic that and, and hopeful that things can stay under control and we can have a great harvest. One of the world's most prestigious thoroughbred sales will kick off on the Gold Coast today. The annual Magic Millions Gold Coast Yearling Sale has drawn a catalogue of almost 1,500 horses to be auctioned over the next week. Last year, the record books were rewritten three times within just 48 hours. The current sale record is $2.7 million, made by Colt I Am Invincible out of Anaheed. Barry Bodich is Magic Millions Managing Director. He says this year's sale is the biggest in its history. So 11am will kick off with uh, the 210 lots tomorrow and book one will go from tomorrow through to after our big, the Star Magic Millions race day with 14, 2.5 million on Saturday. So, um, you know, huge week selling and uh, you know, there's a lot of anticipation around and, uh, you know, there's plenty of people here doing their work and, and looking at these magnificent yearlings we've got to offer. Tell me a bit about the um, the excitement, the anticipation from, of course, the the local, the Australian racing industry, but of course, this Magic Millions always attracts that global interest. It does. You know, we've got buyers from um, all over the world, whether it be America, um, you know, Europe, the UK, all over Asia, Japan, China, Hong Kong, um, New Zealand, uh, a little bit of interest from the Middle East and obviously a huge domestic market. So I think, you know, it's, it's an event, it's a festival, I think... Uh, you know, whether you're a, a horse seller, a horse buyer, or just a horse enthusiast, I think uh, you know it, it's on everyone's calendar these days to come into the Gold Coast and obviously enjoy Queensland and and enjoy you know all all the events that that, that Magic Means has to offer. A fruit and vegetable grower in far north Queensland is trialling small critters as a way to keep weeds in check on his property. It is more than just a gimmick. He has made it part of his broader holistic farming philosophy. Muchel Bar dynamic farmer John Gargan uses guinea pigs to manage weeds on his Queensland property. Well, the guinea pigs eat all all the, the, the weeds and grass and stuff that's encroaching into the syntropic rows. They don't burrow, they don't climb, uh, and they eat like you wouldn't believe. So we had grass probably five foot high in, in amongst our trees, and they've come in and taken it all out. Yes, yeah, really amazing what, what they can do. They can transform a jungle into a, a really controlled environment. Yeah, they're just great little characters. Now, Angus, what are your thoughts on how to serve wine? Would you buy it if it wasn't in a bottle? A University of South Australia researcher says a shift is needed for consumers to buy more alternative packaged wines. Lead researcher Jacob Macedis says there's still a stigma in Australia that products like cask wine are of a lower quality. Other than the fact that, you know, they're really carbon efficient, they save a lot of people or they save a lot of CO2 in terms of how they're produced and manufactured and shipped. Um, they've also just got a lot more consumer-facing benefits. So, like, if we're talking about bag and box or, like, cartons or cans, a lot easier to store, a lot easier to travel with. If we're looking at casks, um, once you open it, your wine stays fresh for a lot longer than it would after if you had just left it in an open bottle, even if you shut the lid. So they're a lot more convenient, a lot more 
ergonomic and they're a lot more sustainable, especially when we're talking about removing CO2 from the winemaking process. And that's today's Rural News. Thanks, Jay. No stigma here around cask wine. Makes good sense to me, as (laughs) that person outlined. Jane McNaughton there with Rural News. Let's head to the Weather Bureau now. Christy Johnson is on the line from the Bureau. Afternoon, Christy. Good afternoon, Angus. Christy, has the rain finally left us? Look, mostly it has, yes. It's contracted into New South Wales. Uh, We've got one or two showers that are likely to pop up over the ranges today, maybe even a rumble of thunder in the northeast, but nothing severe, nothing that's going to drop heavy rainfall like we saw over the last 48 hours. So, um, yes, the severe weather has mostly cleared, and we're left with reasonably settled weather, actually. We've even got a fair bit of sunshine in the the north and the west of the state, so um, that's uh, that's good news. But... The riverine flooding situation is ongoing as all the water that fell over the last 48 hours makes its way down the rivers and creeks and streams. And that's going to play out well for the rest of the week and beyond, I would imagine. Yeah, that's right. So at the moment, we have the major flood warning for um, the Camp Aspie uh, with that major flooding at Rochester and then that, uh, that water moving downstream over the next few days. Um, the Goulburn warning has now uh, dropped back to a moderate flood warning. So we have uh, obviously moderate flooding at Seymour at the moment, um, moderate flooding likely at Murchison uh, this afternoon um, and then peaking sort of overnight into tomorrow morning uh, and then possible moderate flooding um, tomorrow night at Shepparton as well and maybe even after that, depending on the timing of, of how the water all arrives down the, not just the Goulburn, but the Seven and Castle Creeks and the Broken River into Shepparton, there could be some further rises above moderate um, later in the week, but that's being assessed uh, as we see how those peaks move down the rivers. But uh, yeah, so those are probably the areas that have the, the most severe um, flooding at the moment. There's obviously uh, minor to moderate flooding or mostly minor flooding across um, you know, a number of other catchments across Victoria. But, uh, yeah, the main impacts through those those areas. And uh, we'll continue for a few days as the floodwaters make their way slowly downstream and eventually into the Murray River. And floodwater aside, Christy, what else is coming up weather-wise for the rest of the week? Yeah, so uh, today... Um, reasonably mild day. We're looking at uh, temperatures up in the high 20s or, or low 30s in the north and in the south, mostly into the uh, the low 20s. Um, as I say, there has been that, or there is that risk of a, a shower or two popping up in the east of the state, particularly about the ranges this afternoon, and maybe even a rumble of thunder in the northeast, but not too much. And tomorrow, looking even more settled. Um, the risk of showers or, or rumble of thunder really just contracts to the East Gippsland Hills uh, and the rest of the state looking pretty dry and probably a fair bit of sunshine. Temperatures reasonably similar to today, getting into the, uh, well, maybe a little bit warmer, into the, the mid-20s in the south and potentially the low 30s in the north. Um, Thursday, pretty similar, fairly settled weather, uh, just the chance of a shower or um, over the, the east, uh, particularly about the, those East Gippsland Hills. Once again, maybe a bit of a foggy morning. Uh, and then temperatures getting up into around about the uh, the low 30s through the north and the, the mid to high 20s in the south. Friday is probably our hottest day. We've got temperatures uh, well into the mid 30s in the north, 
possibly as high as 37 at Mildura um, and in the south temperatures getting up into the high 20s or maybe even around the 30s or low 30s. Uh, so quite a warm day on uh, Friday. We do have northeasterly winds starting to develop, bringing sort of a bit more of that humidity back. So particularly in the eastern half of the state, it's becoming a bit humid and a bit unstable. So uh, chance of thunderstorms developing. Um, so we'll be watching watching that to see if any of those have the risk of uh, of dropping heavy rainfall at this stage. Not not looking anywhere near as severe as what we saw over the last 48 hours, but uh, there is the chance of of some isolated uh, reasonable rainfall totals on on Friday with uh, some potential thunderstorms. And then over the weekend. Um, we see the temperatures, particularly in the south, dropping back a little bit as uh, as a cold front just clips the south of the state. Um, a few showers, particularly through southern and mountain areas. Uh, yeah, temperatures dropping back into the 20s in the south and low 30s in the north. Uh, for Saturday, um, and a bit showery, a bit, maybe a bit thunderstorming over the east as well with a bit of that humidity and instability hanging around. And Sunday at this stage, uh, looking a little bit showery as well. Um, temperatures remaining in that sort of mid-20s in the south, low 30s in the north kind of range, um, and maybe a chance of a thunderstorm in the northeast. So, look, uh, pretty settled for the next couple of days, uh, particularly um, tomorrow and Thursday, and then maybe just a, a return to some more showery and, and occasionally stormy conditions uh, Friday and into the weekend, but certainly nothing on the scale of what we saw over the last 48 hours. Okay, thanks, Christy. Thanks, Angus. Christy Johnson there, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau with a snapshot of what's happening weather-wise around the state and what's coming up for the rest of the week. ABC Radio, Emergency Information. Well, it's time now to get the latest emergency information from the ABC's emergency broadcasting team, and I'm joined by that team's coordinator, Tyson Whelan. Tyson, what is the latest? Angus, still two emergency warnings in place at this stage for this swelled riverine catchments across central Victoria, that being in the Campaspe and Goulburn River catchments. We'll start with Campaspe River, where we know the eyes of really the whole country has been on the town of Rochester after we know what happened there in October 2022. We see that the river level of the Campaspe River uh, as best I can tell, has peaked at a height of 114.61 metres above sea level. Um, it's currently at 114.6, so hopefully on the way down is best we can tell by the gauges. There still remains an emergency warning to uh, too late to leave that remains in place for low-lying parts of Rochester, but that height of 114.6, uh, well below that height of 115.6 in October 2022, about a metre below that. And so that's the difference between significant numbers of property inundations and what we've seen today, which is so far um, pretty minimal impacts on some of those properties. Of course, that emergency warning remains in place. They don't want vehicles transiting through the water. We know those bow waves can create uh, incidental inundations. So, of course, don't drive through those floodwaters, especially around properties. Latest update from the SES says the water authority pumps have been turned off to protect critical infrastructure from further damage. Uh, water authority pumps will only be turned off for a limited period of time. Emergency services uh, will be providing alternative options for water if required during this disruption. 
Of course, plenty of road closures about this. Northern Highway between Elmore and Ballandella uh, remains closed. The release centre at Echuca uh, South Recreation Reserve, which we know a few people have headed to, uh, that remains open. Speaking of Echuca, uh, expecting a peak there later this week. Early indications suggesting around Thursday as that water makes its way downstream. This is where the Campaspe meets the Murray River. Uh, we'll have an update on exactly where the river is expected to peak there later today during the statewide drive program. Uh, in the Goulburn River catchment, uh, the warning level in Yay, that's been downgraded from an emergency warning to a watch and act, not safe to return there. Uh, it is for it is not safe for people to return to low-lying parts of Yay. We're talking Miller, Lone, Watton, Court, Craigie, Marshbank Streets, uh, and parts of Webster, Nolan, Gifford, Recreation, Mulqueenie, Clarence, Newbury, Innes, Innesfall, and Buckland Court. Uh, the SES saying there's fast-flowing water over Providence Bridge and water across parts of Craigie and Webster Streets, uh, again reminding people not to enter flood water. Uh, releases from Lake Eildon. Uh, that's increased from 1,000 megalitres a day to 3,000 megalitres in the latest update from the SES, and that will obviously have downstream impacts, and that's where we head next. Looking at Seymour, currently 5.82 metres, the river level there falling from that peak of 6.8 metres yesterday afternoon. Uh, an emergency warning, to, uh, too late to leave or not safe to return, again, is in place, I should say, for Seymour. No inhabited homes have been flooded above floor level, according to the SES. However, a small number of businesses have been impacted. Uh, some uninhabited homes previously damaged in the October 2022 flood event have again flooded. Uh, and then our attention turns to Shepparton. We're expecting a peak overnight tonight into tomorrow. Uh, of course, moderate flooding will happen at Murchison and then likely to happen at Shepparton, not expecting to exceed the major flood level at Shepparton of 11 metres. At the moment, it's just 6.36 metres, uh, but will rise significantly over the coming hours before that peak overnight tonight, expected between the moderate flood level of 10.7 metres and the major flood level of 11 metres. Elsewhere, we have moderate flooding in the Latrobe River. That's at Tangle Junction, uh, one to keep an eye on out there. Uh, 10 to 12 properties inundated in Seymour, according to the Premier Jacinta Allen, who's spoken just a short time ago. Of course, the SES responded to around 26 flood rescues over the last 24 hours. Uh, the message, as always, never enter into floodwaters, never walk, ride or drive. If you do find yourself in SES, need of SES assistance, the number is always 132500 in a life-threatening emergency, triple zero, Angus. Tyson, I know you've got a lot to keep your finger on the pulse of, so I appreciate the information. My pleasure. Tyson Whelan there, is, who is the ABC's Emergency Broadcast Coordinator. The Victorian Country Hour on ABC Radio Victoria. Well, how are water storages and weirs being managed by Goulburn Murray Water during this flooding to mitigate impacts on farmers and communities? In some cases, there have been changes to management after the experiences of the 2022 floods. I spoke with Martina Cusack, General Manager of Water Storage Services with GMW. Yeah, I suppose, um, firstly, we'd really like to acknowledge, you know, the hardship that many communities are undergoing. We're very, very mindful of those communities when we have these rain events forecast and in how we manage our storages. Um, and we work with the bomb and the SES pretty closely, Angus. When we get a flood warning or rain event coming in, we don't know where it's going to land. We don't know how, what the intensity is. So we obviously stand up our store, our, our staff, and we prepare release plans depending on how the rain event eventuates. We have been very fortunate in this rain event that we have been able to manage the storages so that there has been no 
um, no releases across any of our storages that went above the minor flood level. So we're very, very comfortable with how this has managed upstream of our catchments. This is not taking away from the, you know, hardship that's experiencing downstream of our dams from local, you know, tributaries and rivers that are causing the current flood. So we acknowledge that and, you know, I suppose, um, again, very conscious of that. On the Goulburn River, there were concerns last flood in late 2022 about the management of Loch Garry uh, downstream of Shepparton and uh, accusations that yep. the gates there were opened, uh, that was left too late to open them and then they were eventually weren't opened because of safety concerns, the water had got, got too high. What's the plan this time That's around? Correct. Yeah, so Goulburn Murray Water has worked with the local community um, and stakeholders at Lake Gary and the um, the operating rules have been modified to ensure that the regulator can be opened differently depending on the nature of the flood, enabling the rules to be effectively applied in different scenarios. So those new rules are now in place and we are obviously watching what's happening um, as, the, as the water currently progresses through Golden Weir and the Gamby, what that actually will mean for Shepparton. We're not sure yet, but there are very definite procedures and protocols on how we notify the affected landowners as soon as we, we become aware of the necessity to operate Loch Garry. Moving on to the Campaspe River, obviously as we speak a lot of water going through Rochester. How much of that is coming over Epilock or, or is more of it feeding in downstream of Epilock? So um, the rain event um, or the flooding that's been experienced on the Campaspe is generally due to um, the tributaries and rivers coming in around Barnawatha, uh, such as Axe Creek and Forest Creek, which is downstream of Lake Epilock. We've been very fortunate that we've been able to capture most of the water um, or the rain that fell above in the upper catchment. We have been able to capture it pretty well in Lake Epilock. So the flooding that's been experienced in the Campaspe is basically from those downstream creeks. Lake Epilock did start to spill um, early yesterday morning um, at very small flow rates. And it's only, uh, I think the spill rate at the moment is about 5,000 megalitres a day. There was very little contribution, if any, to the flood downstream. And in fact, Epilock managed to mitigate some of that flooding event as well. A lot of rain has also fallen north and west of Bendigo, and that, that makes its way north toward Kerrang, uh, a lot of it through Cow Swamp. Uh, again, back in 2022, there were some criticisms of, of insufficient releases through Cow Swamp uh, before the bulk of the flood water arrived. Uh, again, are things being done differently at Cow Swamp this time around? So we're currently um, looking, we're currently releasing water from the Mid-Murray storages. And obviously, even the water that fell a week ago and that over Christmas is still having an impact there. So we're actively managing those storages at the moment. Just finally, the Loddon River, yeah, you've got Lanakuri Reservoir. What's, what's the situation with the Loddon River? Um, the Loddon River is, is I, b- I believe there's no issues on the Loddon River. Our storages are all, again, um, below the minor flood level, all releases directly downstream of all our Loddon storages. So I don't believe there's any issues on the Loddon River. 
That was Martina Cusack, General Manager of Water Storage Services at Goulburn Murray Water. Head off to markets before too long, but before that I'll run through some texts because you've sent quite a few in, which is fantastic. Uh, where we go, the Simon from the Bush says, the Bureau guy said from a professional point of view, the weather was interesting. Well, Simon says, that amounts to no accountability and no care whatsoever. John at Edenhope says, Hi Angus, maybe the media should take some responsibility for how the long-range forecast is or was delivered. I feel that a lot of early selling of livestock last winter and spring was due to how the La Nina event was portrayed by the media. Always, or perhaps that, that should be El Nino. John says, always dramatising the news. Uh... This person says, Angus, from memory, the Bureau was very slow to call El Nino. That that was the case. It was slower than a lot of other uh, weather authorities around the world. It does have, have a dis- different standard or different bar to, to leap over before it does call El Nino. Hence, it was slower than other groups. Uh, Wendy from Narendra says, have a look at the huge budget and staffing cuts to the Bureau of Meteorology under the previous LNP government. Uh, And this person says, Angus, as I understand, El Nino means our summers can be wetter and winters drier. And as for climate change, it has been about for a long time. And Marty at Neil, a regular correspondent on the Country Hour, has got some interesting information as always. He says... Having commenced soil testing to various depths and now putting it on hold, as only so many times I want to get bogged, a touch of El Nino wouldn't go astray. Only 13 weeks until cropping starts and anything over an average autumn winter rainfall in the West Wimmera would see us having to contend with a 2022 repeat with increased fungal pressure and a loss of crop due to inundation. So Marty clearly quite happy for it to be dry or drier than average at least, for the next few months. Uh, <laughs> Jono sent a picture of his uh, of a very blue-looking sky at his place, so no rain at Jono's place on the borderline. Uh, and Jeff says the Bureau is a management tool available to all. If you don't like what they predict, ignore it and go with your gut, as our predecessors did. Good luck, says Jeff. Thanks for that text, Jeff. Uh, and Damien from Woodside North in south-central Gippsland says, we have just spent two weeks reinstating fencing in some of our paddocks in order to keep our stock in. Overnight, half of this fencing was damaged. Again, that's three floods in less than two months. Damien says, I hope the state and federal governments don't forget us when providing flood relief. We might give you a call and see if you're up for a chat, Damien. Thanks for getting in touch on the text line. Uh, Zero four six seven eight four two seven double two is the text line. If you're quick, off to markets now. Starting today at Wodonga Cattle with Leandax. Good afternoon. The latest auction at Wodonga, 880 cattle were bought to the yards, marking the first sale following the blue ribbon wiener sales. The sale drew a large group of bot processors, all actively participating in the show. Notably, European Vealers stole the spotlight, witnessing a significant price surge of 57 cents for the top tier calves. The majority of sales ranged from 237 to 326, 
While trade cattle exhibited mixed trends, there was an overall improvement of 50 cents for both heifers and steers. The predominant range for these trades were 232 to 299. Feeder steers were limited in supply, commanding prices ranging from 270 to 280 for well-bred stock. In the export category, prices experienced gains ranging from 40 cents to 70 cents. It's essential to note that pre-Christmas sale featured a minimal number of buyers contributing to some distortion in the price landscape. Moving on to the cow market, robust gains of 50 to 70 cents were observed with heavy cows fetching prices from 230 to 250. I'm Leanne Ducks for MLA. Thanks Leanne. Let's head to Shepherd and Cattle now with Nicole Varley. Good afternoon. Well, it is a positive start to the new year at Shepparton with an extensive array of buyers, plenty of onlookers and spirited competition with dearer prices. Sale numbers declined from the original draw due to the flooding in some parts. The possible reduced availability of some stock brought with it the uplift in prices. There were 535 exports of and 240 trade cattle pen. Feedlotters were active over the whole yarding. The vealers to the trade, all but a handful, made from 247 to a top of 340 cents. Yearling steers ranged from 260 to 310. Yearling heifer portion 232 to 287 cents. There were very limited numbers of growing steers, with the 500 to 600 kilo steers making from 274 to 285 cents. 600 kilo plus steers range from 264 to 285. The beef cows made a significant jump on last year's closing sales and ranged from 228 to 268 cents, while the dairy portion made from 160 to 240, with the bulk of the D1s averaging 220. This is Nicole Varley from Shepparton. Thanks, Nicole. To Ballarat Lambs now with Shiona Lamb. Good afternoon. For the first sale back at Ballarat, agency added 34,000 lambs. Quality was plain to excellent. The usual buying group attended and extra store buyers were present. The market opened strong and was electric throughout all weights and grades. With sales 30 to $50 a head dearer across the yarding. Store, store lambs back to the paddock and to feed on sold 65 to $164 a head. Light trade lambs to suit MK order sold 98 to 149 to average 6.90 to 7.40 cents a kilo. Young lambs in wool sold from 18 to 24 kilos sold 134 to 210. 24 to 26 kilos sold 195 to 235 and over 26 kilos sold 228 to 258 to average 760 to 860 cents a kilo carcass weight. Sean lambs 18 to 24 sold to the trade 150 to 216. 24 to 26 kilo lambs sold 205 to 242 to average 790 to 850 cents. Heavy export lambs 26 to 30 kilos sold 228 to 270 and over 30 kilos made 276 to 291. There are still 9,000 sheep to be sold. This is Shiona Lamb at Ballarat for MLA. Thanks Shiona. Quickly before I go on the text line, someone asks why the Campaspe flood level, f- flood level figure is so high. 114 metres, other rivers maybe 5, 6, 7, 8. It's not a direct comparison, that's because the Campaspe is taken essentially from the, the average sea level set at zero and taking the measurement above that. Other river levels are measured at, in local levels, so you really can't compare across rivers. You can only compare within rivers and comparing levels to what those minor, moderate, major flood levels are set at. Jeff as well also asked why more, to, why, why more water wasn't released from Epilock to relieve Rochester. Well, GMW said that really wouldn't have made much difference because most of the water came in downstream of Epilock, local flooding. Thanks for all of your texts today, though. Great to have those contributions. We very quickly run out of time. News time now, one o'clock.